as the kids are making their way to their classes. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of Philemon. This is our third week going through this book. We'll conclude this, Lord willing, today, this letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend by the same name, written as Paul is appealing to his friend to receive back to himself this runaway slave turned brother in Christ named Onesimus. A couple Sundays ago, we looked at the first few verses and sought to form a foundation for reconciliation. Last week, we looked at Paul's appeal to Philemon for reconciliation, and today, as we conclude this letter, we're going to seek to unpack what fuels our reconciliation with one another. You know, reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ is hard work, and it's not fun. It's not something that any of us look forward to with great anticipation, longing to work through conflict with one another and reconcile our differences with one another. It typically involves us facing our own flesh, the the ugliness of our own sin nature, and that of the person with whom we're in conflict with. And who wants to do that, right? It's not fun. It's difficult. It's messy. So what's going to fuel that? What's going to fuel us and compel us to do that hard work anyway? And that's what we seek to unpack today as we read the last few verses of this letter. We're going to be in verse 17 through the end of this letter. Church, this is God's word. So if you consider me your partner, receive him, that is receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to worship you in song, in prayer, and in reading your word. And we pray now, Father, as we turn our attention to this passage of Scripture, Father, that through the preaching and proclaiming of your word, that you would minister grace and hope and peace to your church. Father, I pray that that you would bear fruit in our lives for your glory as a result of being impacted by your word. And we know, Father, that, that we're asking something supernatural of you. We're not simply asking that we would 
be smarter about what this says and that we would have a greater knowledge about what this means. But Lord, you would transform us to look more like Jesus for having interacted with your word this morning. Father, we pray for those among us who don't know you by faith. Maybe they're trying to earn your favor. Maybe they're trying to appease your wrath against their sin. Father, I pray that they would come to the reality of their hopeless condition apart from Christ and they would see the reality and the truth and the hope, the eternal hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring them across that line of faith this morning so that you would recreate more worshipers for your glory. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I look at this passage, uh, an outline comes together in three parts, um, as is typically the case. Uh, But we're going to look at verses 17 through 19, where Paul is going to uh, unpack for us some further implications of our koinonia partnership with one another in the faith. Because of the gospel, some implications of that with respect to our reconciliation with one another. And then verse 20, I see kind of standalone as a summary statement of all that Paul is talking about and all that Paul is asking for from Philemon in this letter. And then in the closing verses are some closing thoughts and a final greeting that we'll look at as well. So let's look first at these koinonia implications. In verse 17, Paul puts his partnership with Philemon on the line. He says, if we're, if we're partners, then I want you to treat Onesimus as if it were me. You and I are partners. And so, so when Onesimus returns to you, I want you to see me when you see Onesimus. I want you to see that, that Onesimus is standing in my place as he stands before you. And so he wants him to see Paul, and not just Onesimus standing before him. So so Paul is leveraging his partnership with Philemon here. Now, I want you to note that word partner there in verse 17. The word for partner is the same word that is, or, or, or it's the same root word as the word that is translated sharing back in verse 6 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. In verse 6, the word sharing was the Greek word koinonia. And here, in verse 17, the word partner is the word koinonos. And both of them refer to what we described as that mutual partnership that we have in the gospel. That those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, that we are part of one another. That we have a partnership, a mutual belonging to one another because of our common faith in Christ and our common union to Christ. And so Paul says, because of our koinonia in the gospel, Onesimus is standing in the place of me. And so receive him as you would receive me. And I think I think we could read between the lines and say that the opposite is also true. Brother, if you can't receive Onesimus, then you really can't receive me either. Because we have this partnership in one another because of the gospel. One of the things that this 
little letter from Paul to Philemon teaches us is that our koinonia partnership, because of the gospel, our mutual belonging to one another is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling that, that makes us feel more emotionally connected to one another. It is a reality. It, it is a reality that we are part of one another, and, and that reality should be leveraged for things like gospel growth and, and gospel community and gospel mission. Paul puts his partnership with Philemon on the line. Philemon, if we're really partners in the gospel, then when you see Onesimus, you see me. I'm standing, he's standing in my place because we're part of one another. So do we do that? Do we leverage our koinonia with our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we're united because of our common faith in the gospel? Do we leverage that koinonia for growth and grace? Do we leverage it to help one another fight against indwelling sin? Do we leverage our koinonia to encourage and urge one another to be faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ to take the gospel to those who are lost? I think, I think perhaps this might be one of the keys that is often missing in our accountability with one another. Think about it. In, in our accountability with one another, oftentimes we're, we're either responding too softly or too hard. When we confess our sins to one another, that, which the Scripture compels us to do and tells us to do, the response that we give to one another is often one of two extremes. Either it's, oh, it's okay, everybody sins. Don't worry, grace covers that. Almost like a soft antinomianism, which is no law and all grace. Or, on the other side of the horse, it's not too soft, it's too hard. It's judgment and legalism and a lot more law and very little grace. The former is just a pat on the back. It's okay. We all sin. And the, the latter is a, more like a punch in the face. What, what if in our accountability with one another, we were to leverage our koinonia? We were to leverage the fact that we belong to one another. We are part of one another in Christ. And say, brother... We're united to one another because we're both united to Christ. So, brother, I want to encourage you that, to remember that, that when you sin, you're sinning with my body and not just your own. Because we are members one of another. This is part of what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 6.15 when he's urging the Corinthian believers to flee from sexual immorality. He says to them, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul concludes. In other words, because of our union with Christ by faith, Jesus is present with us when we sin. 
So that in a very real sense, we are sinning with the body of Christ. And what Paul is talking about here, the the reality of our koinonia with one another, that we mutually belong to one another, that we have a partnership in one another because of our common union in Christ, just takes Paul's thought there from 1 Corinthians 6.15 to the next logical conclusion. So that now when we sin, we aren't just joining the members of Christ in our sin. We are joining one another in our sin. Now, Paul here is not explicitly telling Philemon that he is in sin if he does not receive Onesimus back, but certainly he is leveraging his koinonia here with Philemon to urge him to do the right thing. And I think we ought to also likewise consider how we ought to leverage our partnership in the gospel and leverage our koinonia with one another and put our partnership on the line as Paul did here with Philemon to encourage one another to grow in our walk with Christ, to grow in our pursuit of holiness and godliness, to grow in our fight against sin, and to grow as ambassadors of Christ seeking to make disciples of all nations. So in verse 17, Paul is saying, in essence, Onesimus stands in the place of me. And then in verse 18, he says the opposite. I am now standing in the place of Onesimus. In verse 18, he says, if he's wronged you in any way, or if you've incurred any expense as a result of what he's done, charge that to my account, Paul says. I'm going to be the one to pay the penalty for Onesimus' actions. I will absorb his debt. And brother and sister, isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us? As he stands in our place at Calvary, as he pays the price that we deserve to pay, here Paul says, I will stand in that place and I will pay his guilt. I will stand in the place of his guilt. As we mentioned earlier, many scholars believe that Onesimus, when he ran away from Philemon, also robbed from Philemon. He took some of his possessions from him. And perhaps it's the value of these possessions that funded his journey all the way from Colossae in Asia Minor across the sea to Rome, where he would ultimately meet up with Paul. So not only was there there the offense of running away from Philemon, but there was the added offense of stealing from him. But Paul says, I want those expenses charged to my account, not the account of Onesimus. As I read through this, this reminded me of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. You remember the story. A man is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he is robbed by thieves. They beat him, and they strip him naked, and they leave him unconscious in the middle of the road. And then Jesus said, a priest and then a Levite come by, and instead of stopping to help him, they are afraid that they might become unclean from touching a dead body. They don't want to soil their their liturgical clothes. And so they pass by on the other side. 
But then that Samaritan comes by, and he doesn't pass by. Instead, he stops, he goes to the man, he bandages his wounds, he pours oil on them. He puts him on his own donkey and leads him into the next town where he pays for his stay at an innkeeper. And what does he tell the innkeeper? If you incur any more expenses as a result of him, I will repay you. Charge those to my account. And of course, Jesus tells that parable in Luke 10 in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Well, Paul's being a good neighbor here to his friend Onesimus. He says, whatever expenses he's caused you to incur, charge that to my account. It just makes me wonder if we're prepared, likewise, to incur the expenses and the debt of our brothers and sisters in Christ when they find themselves in need, just as Paul did for Onesimus. You see, this too is an implication of our koinonia, our mutual belonging to one another, our partnership in the gospel. If we're truly part of one another, because of our mutual union to Christ by faith, then when one of us is in need, we see that as us being in need. We take that need for ourselves. Paul was saying as much when he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So our partnership in the gospel, our koinonia, ought to be leveraged not just for our sanctification, but also leveraged in our suffering when we find ourselves in need. Paul figured that Onesimus is in need. It's a need that I can do something about, and so he did because of his partnership both with Onesimus now and with Philemon in the gospel. And you know, as I thought about that, I... I, just recalled to my mind so many examples of how I see this happening in our church. When one member finds themselves in need, the other members around them, whether that's in their base group or in the broader community of faith in our church, other members see that as their need. They take ownership of that they take responsibility for that as if it were their own need because in a deeper sense of what koinonia means it is our body is in need when one member is in need and when we do this friend it just it it adorns the gospel and it gives the watching world an apologetic for our faith Because this is the kind of stuff that the world knows nothing of. It is different. It is strange. But it is appealing and attractive. And so let us continue to embody this implication of koinonia. In verse 19, we see both a promise to pay as well as a reality check here for Philemon. First, there's the promise to pay. Paul says, I will repay it. And this is a a true promise, a true pledge, because he says, by the way, I'm writing this with my own handwriting. 
Most of Paul's letters are written with the use of what scholars call an, an amanuensis. Amanuensis comes from the Latin meaning um, servus amanuensis, um, belonging to a servant of the hand is what it literally means. It's a, it's a, it's a secretary who takes dictation. Paul would speak the words and the secretary who was a servant of the hand would write them down on paper. One of his secretaries identifies himself in the book of Romans. At the end of the book of Romans, we find in in verse 22 of chapter 16, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. That doesn't mean that Tertius is the author of Romans. Paul is undoubtedly the author of Romans. He says so himself in the greeting, in the opening. But Tertius was that amanuensis. He was a servant of the hand. As as Paul spoke the words, Tertius would write them down on paper. But even when he used an amanuensis, he would typically make a mark toward the end of his letter in his own handwriting. This was typical of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he writes this at the end of 2 Thessalonians. It says, I write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Well, the same thing is happening here in Philemon. When Paul wants to ensure that Philemon will know without a shadow of a doubt that it is he who is pledging himself to, to pay back the expenses that he has incurred because of Onesimus, he asked the amanuensis, whoever he is, to, to yield the pen to him. And he takes up the pen in his own handwriting. He says, this is me. I want there to be no doubt whatsoever that it is I who am pledging myself to pay the price for Onesimus. So there's this pledge to pay that debt. And then there's a reality check at the end of verse 19. Paul says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What is Paul trying to get across here? He says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. In other words, never mind the fact that you you owe me your own self. It seems to suggest that Philemon is somehow in debt to Paul. In a big way, because it says, you owe me your own self, implied that he owes his own life to Paul for something that Paul did for him. Scholars tell us that this points to the fact that Paul is the one who led Philemon to faith in Jesus Christ. He was a rich guy in Colossae, just living living out his own dream and his own life. And somehow, in some way, he came into contact with the Apostle Paul, and Paul walked him through the gospel, and he came to faith in Christ, and his eternal life and his his life in this world was changed forever. So what is is Paul trying to communicate here? What is is he saying? Well, he's appealing to Philemon to forgive the debt owed to him by Onesimus. That's that's what he's trying to do. He wants him to forgive the debt owed to him by Onesimus. But in in making this statement, he's saying that the ground 
the, the basis, the, the fuel for his forgiveness of that debt is to be reminded that he owes a far greater debt to Paul. This should remind us of Jesus' answer to Peter when Peter asked them, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus' answer to Peter is the parable of the unmerciful servant as recorded in Matthew 18. You remember that story. A servant owes a huge, unpayable debt to his master, the king. And that king comes to collect. And the servant can't pay it. I, I, I could never repay this. This debt is huge. Billions of dollars in our, our currency today. And so he, he begs for mercy. And the king forgives that debt. And what does that servant do? He immediately goes out and finds another fellow servant who owes him not an insignificant amount, but relatively tiny compared to the unpayable debt that he had been forgiven by the king. Not billions, but thousands. Not insignificant. And this fellow servant couldn't pay that either. And so he, like the first servant, begs for mercy. But instead of granting mercy, that unmerciful servant is unmerciful. And he demands payment. And he throws him in jail until he can repay it. And of course, his fellow servants find out about this and, and go and report him to the king. And, and the, the point of that parable, the point of that story, is that, friend, when we're called upon to forgive those who had offended us, who, who hurt us in some way, the fuel for us to be able to do that hard thing is to be reminded in that moment that we've been forgiven a far greater debt. The debt that we owe to Christ because of our offense against Him. That's what Paul's doing here. Philemon owes Paul a, a greater debt, a much greater debt. A debt he could never repay. And he's mentioning that debt here in hopes that Philemon would not be like the unmerciful servant who, though he had been forgiven much, refused to forgive the far lesser debt. So if someone is, has sinned against you, if someone has offended you and hurt you in some way, your being called upon to forgive that person, which is our duty in Christ, is a hard thing. It's a hard thing. It is. But the fuel to compel our willingness to forgive them is to be reminded that we've been forgiven a far greater debt in Christ. That we have been forgiven of the sins that we have committed against Him. The offense that we've had against Him. When I remember, when we remember the debt that Christ has absorbed on our behalf, though we didn't deserve it, we didn't deserve that. I'm much more willing to be able to forgive those who had sinned against me and offended me. If Christ has not rejected me, 
even though and in spite of my sins against him, my offense against him, forgiveness from others. So those are some of the koinonia implications with respect to reconciliation that we find here. But now Paul concludes here in verse 20, the main body of his letter, by giving a summary statement up to this point. It says in verse 20, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. What I want to show you is that this is a power-packed summation of all that Paul has said in this letter. And in order for us to see that and come to grips with that, we need to look under the surface at some of the words that Paul uses here. The first word I want us to look at a bit more closely is the word benefit. It says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I want some benefit from you. That word benefit is the Greek word onimony, which means useful, profitable, to be of some benefit. As you look at that word, you might notice that it looks a lot like Onesimus' name, Onemone, Onesimus, which we said his name means useful. That's what his name means. And so usefulness is a theme throughout this letter, and, and Paul is playing word games to draw attention to that theme. We're introduced to Onesimus first in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. And the name Onesimus means useful. And then the very next verse, in verse 11, he continues that word game and he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. And we noted last week that that word for useful there is eukristos, which is a synonym for onemony. And it also means useful, which is why the English Bible translates it useful in verse 11. And now in verse 20, Paul says, I want to receive a benefit from you. I want to receive an onemony, something useful from you. So Paul is saying to Philemon first, he says, I want you, Philemon, I want you to receive an onemony. In the person of the onimity, Onesimus. I want you to receive that which is useful back to you. But now he's saying, I want to receive an onimity from you. By you refreshing me in the Lord. He says at the end of verse 20, refresh my heart in Christ. That word refresh is an imperative verb. It's a command. Refresh my heart, Philemon. To me, when I hear the word refreshment, I think of snacks, right? But that's not what he's talking about here. This word in the Greek is anapao, and it literally means to rest from movement or striving or activity in order to recover. Typically, in the English Bible, it is translated into the word rest. Jesus says it in Matthew 11, verse 28 familiar passage come to me all who are weary and heavy all who labor and are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest i will give you a rest from your striving and your activity and your movement in order for you to recover we also saw this word in our study of revelation that we just finished 
In Revelation 14, verse 13, John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That's why we talk about entering into an eternal rest. No more striving. No more striving. We might rest and recover. But we also saw this word earlier in this letter in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul says to Philemon in verse 7, Brother, it brings me great joy because the saints have been refreshed. They've been anapowed. They have found rest because of you in their life. And now he says in verse 20, but brother, I, I want to receive some rest from you. I, I, I want to be refreshed and apowered. I, I, I want to see a, a rest in my heart by you in Christ. And that phrase in Christ tells us that the kind of refreshment that Paul is looking for from Philemon here is not rest from his earthly labors. It's not rest from his many travels and ministry obligations, but it is rest in the Lord. And this kind of refreshment that Paul is, is commanding now from Philemon is a rest of one's heart. This is the third time that Paul has referred to the heart in this short letter. As we noted in verse 7, he says, For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. Their hearts have been refreshed. In verse 12, he says, I'm sending Onesimus to you, my very heart. And now in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, I, wanna, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, so refresh my heart in Christ. In all three of those occurrences the word for heart there is the greek word splagnon which is where we get my very favorite greek word splagnitsamai just fun to say but splagnon for the greek was not a reference to that organ that pumps body pumps blood throughout our bodies to the to the roman and to the greek mind they knew about that organ. They knew about the body, at least to that extent, that that was where blood was pumped throughout our body. But to the Greek and Roman mind, they did not consider that organ to be the seat of one's emotions and affections. Instead, for them, it was the bowels. The bowels was the seat of emotions and affections, and so their Valentine's cards would have looked a lot different. <laughs> so to the Greek, the, the, the splagnon, the bowels, of, we, we get our English word spleen from this word splagnizomai. The splagnon, the bowels of a person, not the heart, was the seat of emotions and affections. Which is why splagnizomai, which means compassion, merciful compassion, is a word picture for us. It's the feeling that we feel in our gut when we see someone hurting, when we see someone enduring injustice and, and pain. 
It's like a gut punch. That's what we say, right? It's like a gut punch. And it hurts us to the point where we've got to do something about it. That is the biblical idea of the word compassion. But what Paul is saying here, he's, he's referring to, to his splagnon not being at rest. It's in turmoil because of the tension that he perceives between two brothers in Christ, Philemon and Onesimus. And so what is Paul saying here? He is saying, bring me some usefulness, brother. Bring me some benefit, some, some onemony. Bring that to me. And do that by refreshing, anapowowing, bringing to rest my heart, my splagnon. And brother, do that by receiving your onemony in the person of Onesimus. The horizontal application here is abundantly clear that we should be ready and willing to refresh one another in our hearts by being ready and willing to pursue and be an agent of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. But the vertical application comes into even greater focus here because it is Jesus who stood in our place at Calvary. It is he who said, I, I will pay the cost. I will pay and absorb their debt. And brothers and sisters, this brings refreshment to everyone involved. It brings refreshment to me because now my striving to try to earn God's favor or appease his wrath against my sin is done. No more striving is necessary, thank God. The striving was finished when Jesus breathed his last and then rose from the dead. It brings refreshment to Christ because his striving to pay the price for my sin, it is finished, he said. Nothing else needs to be done. No more price needs to be paid. It was all paid. And friend, it brings refreshment to our God because the hostility between us and Him, between the God of the universe and those who are His children, that hostility is now gone. And now only peace remains between He and those He came to save. And Paul is convinced here. He's convinced that Philemon will, in fact, re refresh his heart by reconciling with his slave-turned-brother-in-Christ, Onesimus. And he says in mu as much in this final section. In verse 21, he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Here, Paul is believing the best about his brother. And he's instilling his brother with gospel hope. I think that's a real critical element for us to emulate when we're endeavoring to work for reconciliation between our brothers and sisters in Christ. To believe the best about them and to instill them with gospel hope. When someone shows you something about your character or something about your life that needs to change, how they go about that is going to make a big difference in our willingness to listen to them and even heed their counsel, right? 
if someone says to me, Ken, the way that you spoke to that person was unkind, it lacked patience and grace, but I know that you're just an angry person and you'll probably never change. It's not going to certainly not believe in the best about me and it's not going to instill me with any gospel hope whatsoever. But if they approach me and say, Ken, how you spoke to that person was unkind and it lacked patience and grace, but I know your heart and I know that you don't want that to be the case. And so on the basis of our mutual partnership in the gospel, I want to appeal to you to be the person that I know that you want to be and the person that you can be because of Christ in you. If that's how somebody approaches me, I'm going to be a lot, a lot more open and, and, and willing and encouraged to make the kind of gospel changes that I need to make in how I treat one another. That's what Paul is doing here with Philemon. Brother, I'm confident that, that you're not going to only do what I'm talking to you about here, but, but because I know you and I know your heart, you're probably going to do a lot more than that. So he's instilling them, Philemon, with gospel hope. What else do we see in the closing of this letter? Verse 22, he appeals again to his relational connection with Philemon, telling him that he's looking forward to seeing him again, and he wants to even be able to stay in his house, right? I think that's key that we remember as we're seeking to encourage and pursue reconciliation, that we appeal to the common trust that we have in one another because of our personal relationship with one another. And then verses 23 and 24, we see these final personal greetings from others who are with Paul. He mentions no less than five people by name who also know Philemon and also are sending their greetings to Philemon. You know, the only letter that in which Paul includes more personal greetings than Philemon is the letter that was written to the church that meets in Philemon's house, the church in Colossae. And I can't help but wonder that there may be a, a bit of accountability built into these greetings here for Philemon. Because all these folks, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, all of them surely know about Paul's appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back. And if he refuses, he does so with their full knowledge, with the full knowledge of each of these guys to whom he will have to give an account. And then finally, in verse 25, Paul closes with, I, with, with what I believe to be the key to Philemon's obedience in this regard. He says in verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As we've unpacked this letter over the last three Sundays, we've been navig <clears throat> navigating a balance between the horizontal and the vertical, between the practical and the spiritual. The practical application that lies on the surface of this letter is found on that horizontal plane in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. That we ought to be 
agents of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. And that when others offend us, we ought to be ready to forgive and willing to reconcile because of our common bond in the gospel, because of our koinonia, our mutual belonging to one another, that we do the hard work to work for reconciliation in our relationships with one another and compels us to refuse to accept anything other than full reconciliation. That's the practical application. But the spiritual application that that lies under the surface of this letter is found on that vertical plane of our relationship with our Lord. And we've seen this each week, and today's passage is no different, no exception, that we see these reflections of the gospel all throughout this letter. We, We see... Onesimus, who Paul says he was formerly useless, but now has become useful because of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Onesimus, who was a bondservant, has now become a brother because of his reconciliation to God through Christ And we see Paul, the the mediator of this reconciliation, who negotiates peace with Philemon. And he points us to Jesus, the mediator of our peace with God. And even in this morning's passage, we see Paul standing in the place of Onesimus. When Onesimus returns to Philemon, he's standing in the place of Onesimus, just as Jesus stood in our place at Calvary. And he was condemned for our sin. We see Paul here absorbing the debt of Onesimus, pointing to Christ, our Savior, who absorbed the debt of our offense against God. Friends, these gospel pictures that we find in this letter are, in fact, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that that Paul prays will be with Philemon's spirit. You see, it's the key to his obedience. It's the key to him doing the right thing. I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever in that, that, that in this letter in which Paul is appealing to Philemon to do the right thing, he enumerates over and over and over again these beautiful pictures of the gospel. Because there are implications to the gospel. Like doing the right thing in this situation with Philemon and Onesimus. There are implications of the gospel that can only be fulfilled if we are fueled by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find at Calvary. What will fuel Philemon to take Onesimus back? It is a reminder that because of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, God has received Philemon back. That's the fuel. And that is what fuels all of our obedience to Christ in this life. 
That is what fuels our relentless fight against indwelling sin. That is what fuels our pursuit of godliness and holiness. That is what fuels our efforts to build gospel community and the bride of Christ. And church, that is what fuels our evangelistic fervor to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. And so in hopes of of our our faithfulness in these and other areas. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your and my spirits. And may it fuel our faithfulness in all of these areas. Let's pray. Father, we pause to intercede right now for the person who may be in this room who has never professed faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that all of this talk about reconciling with with one another would not in, in any way distract them from the reality of their need for reconciliation with you. Father, I ask that you would bring that person to a place of conviction of their own sin and rebellion against you and show them the truth and the reality of the gospel that that is why Christ put on flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose again. And Father, we pray that you would bring that person to a place of responding to the gospel in repentance of sin and trust in Christ alone. I beg of you, Lord, do your miraculous work of redemption and reconciliation in our midst this morning by saving that person. Bring them to faith in Jesus. Turn them from their sin and self-rule and turn them to your son, Jesus Christ, in saving faith. And redeem, Lord, for yourself another worshiper. Father, for those in this room whom you have saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, I pray that you would keep us grounded in that gospel that we would never get over the gospel, that we would never take it for granted, so that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shown to us at Calvary would fuel us and compel us to pursue reconciliation with one another and to be faithful in all the aspects of life that you call us to. Lord, not so that people would look, would look at us and say, what faithful people, but so that people would look at us as broken vessels, broken clay pots, and say, what a glorious God who has used them for his own glory. Glorify yourself in your church, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.